Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1167, with guest Fishwas Lele. Recorded Tuesday, July 7th, 2015. Hey, hey, hey! What's up, Richard? Doing the thing with the stuff. I do like summertime. I love summertime. It's been far too long coming, but I'm enjoying every every minute of it. Yeah, you had a long winter. Long winter. I got ribs in the smoker, so good things are happening. Gotta love ribs in the smoker in summertime. All right, enough of that, and let's, uh, well, we got a lot to say in this show, so let's get busy. Uh, roll the music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, if you go to tinyurl.com slash DevOps thingy. Thingy? Thingy. I-E at the end? Thingy? DevOps thingy with a Y. <laughs> the Y. Okay. You'll see, you'll see a Obviously. blog. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I looked it up, man. Okay. Uh, you'll see a blog post uh, from May 2014 by Silvano Dosen, who's an integration engineer at Financial Times Limited. And the title of the post is, Big flashing DevOps thing, or how to solve a complex monitoring problem with a Raspberry Pi and blinky tape. <laughs> so it's a great, uh, it's a great post. It's short, but he includes the plans. He went from, uh, Nagios to an LCD monitor to ops cop and finally bit the bullet and built his own system and LED blinky tape. Uh, and it's all sectioned off by color and each or each section represents one of the servers and it's color coded and he just puts it up in the office where everybody can see it so uh, he calls it saws like and he's got a real graphic you know with the jaws logo and stuff <laughs> <laughs> and saws uh saws stands for uh what does it stand for the uh silvano's awesome warning system nice yeah and it's pretty cool. You can see it. A group of LEDs, and he says the blue LEDs swoosh back and forth like a Cylon to indicate the Python script is running and the data is up to date. Nice. So if you've got blue Cylon eyes up in the corner, everything's good. You see orange or purple or red. Uh-oh, something's going on. I thought that was pretty pretty ingenious. Yeah. You know, we used to talk about having a siren or something for breaking the build. Yeah. Just this idea of an immediate visualization for the state of the infrastructure. And it actually has meaning. You can actually tell from which lights, which section is red or orange or different color, which server's got a problem or what the nature of the problem is. I mean, it's not detailed, but it's visceral. Right. I, I And it's something that anybody walking in the room right away knows. Yep. Oh, if there's red lights over there, you guys must be working. You're busy. Yeah. 
Yeah, very cool. Cool idea. I love it. Yep, good idea. And uh, maybe we'll send him a mug, too. Nice. So uh, if we can find out how to get in touch with him. Richard, who's talking to us? Speaking of sending out a mug, I grabbed a comment off of show 1082, the one we did at NDC London in 2014 mm-hmm. um, with Ben Hall, Jeff French, uh, Enrico, and Peter, uh, where we talked about DevOps in general. And there's this great comment right at the end here uh, from William Berry. He says, hey, guys, great show as always. After listening to this roundtable and dozens of other talks lately on DevOps, there is a presumption that a cult, the cultural change is a foregone conclusion, a decision already made by management, emphasized by statements like, you don't want it to break in production, give developer the pager. Mm-hmm. While this version of the story is a great fa- line for consultants to wield on management, don't forget about the developers who see DevOps as an opportunity to enhance the value that they bring to the business. Mm. Developers need to hear that they can drive the DevOps culture change, proving the value to management and operations as they go. Yeah. Developers can start small with continuous builds that run after every push to the source control system. The next natural step is to focus on automated deployment by deploying the software via scripts into their dev environment after a successful build. The software is now building and deploying completely automatically, so continuous integration can easily graft it onto that system with scheduled nightly builds and small automated test scripts. Not only are developers having hard numbers of build, test, and deploy counts that can be brought to management, they also sit down with ops and say, hey, all you have to do is run this script and the software deploy itself, or better yet, let's get a tool like Octopus Deploy and have it run the script for you. Yeah. Which, I mean, hits on a really valid point sort of obliquely here, which is it is not easy for devs to convince operations to install software on servers, which is what Octopus Deploy needs. And you know what? I, I still go back to that to the priority list that you uh, outline in your talks, Richard, yeah. about DevOps, which is tools is at the bottom of the list. Sure. If you don't have the buy-in, you don't have the trust, and you don't have the the culture of DevOps, then you don't, you're not going to get anybody to use a tool. But culture doesn't exist on its own. Like, you do have to get through having some success. And I appreciate that William here did it, you know, do a little this, then a little this, and you start having some wins. Mm. And he goes on to say exactly that. Value can be proven mm. to management and goodwill shown to ops just with these kinds of moves. And then from here, the developer can, can begin conversations with management about workflows and the value of continuous delivery for clients yeah. and of continuous deployment as an asset management strategy for the business. Because ultimately, you know, if you're not doing big bang releases every year or so, how are you providing value to your customer? Like it looks different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it actually affects the way the, the business sells its product once you get down this path. Uh, and over in operations, the developer can bring their knowledge of the source control to infrastructure te- code projects. Just did a show on this on Run As Radio talking about source control management for PowerShell scripts. And that's at runasradio.com. Yeah. Because yeah. this is becoming a big topic is how do I get this code in shape where it's properly tested? There are test suites for PowerShell now. Right. As well as code that, you know, the, here's the big statement. Is there any PowerShell script you've ever built that you would let anybody else run ever? <laughs> you know, just like code you write in regular development. You know, what, at what point do you get to an, to a place with your code where you could hand it to someone else and they'd be okay with it? Yeah. Uh, and finishing up with William here, the point is to say that the DevOps culture change is not limited to management initiatives. Developers who are looking to bring more value to their businesses can work to drive the change. And I could have said it better myself. Mm-hmm. Thank you, William. Loved your comment. Uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or via any of the social media that we post to. Facebook, Google+, every show goes up there. If you write comments there, we'll read them on the show and send you a mug. Absolutely. You can tweet us. I'm at Carl Franklin. Richard's at Rich Campbell. And, uh, you know, we read them. And sometimes we even respond. 
Hey, but before we go any further, I got to tell you, Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, release dozens of new courses every month, and still offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, everything Microsoft, and at least 17 courses covering DevOps, including those by our guest, Vishwas Lele. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to our guest. Vishwas Lele serves as CTO at Applied Information Sciences Incorporated. Mr. Lele is responsible for assisting organizations in envisioning, designing, and implementing enterprise solutions related to cloud and mobility. Mr. Lele brings close to 25 years of experience and thought leadership to his position and has been with AIS for 20 years. A noted industry speaker and author, Mr. Lele serves as the Microsoft Regional Director for Washington, D.C., and is currently a Microsoft Azure MVP. Welcome back, Vishwas. Well, thank you, Richard and Carl. It's, uh, it's good to talk to you. We, were ta- we usually talk about Azure with you. In fact, you were one of the first guys we talked about Azure with on .NET Rocks. Way back. Yes. Yeah. That, that was way back, yes. Yep. And so, uh, naturally... Uh, Azure is a great platform for DevOps topics of all kinds. And uh, you've been thinking about model-driven DevOps lately? Uh, yes. Uh, so I've been, I've been thinking of uh, model-driven DevOps, and uh, I, have to, I have to say I'm guilty of, of you know, coming up with this rather pretentious name. But hopefully... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say... <laughs> Right. So, uh, but, uh, but hopefully, through the course of this conversation, I can explain what I mean. At least I have a retention. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if I may jump in, um, uh, as you know, I've been developing on Azure for, for some time now. And in the last couple of years, uh, it dawned on me that, uh, uh, of course, you need to understand all the Azure services and there is a growing list of services. But then you also have to sort of focus on the infrastructure aspects, the deployment aspects, and the monitoring aspects of the application. Those are becoming equally important. Yeah. And, and those are slightly different than, than what used to be the case with an on-premises environment. So I, as an application developer, application architect, whatever, uh, have sort of spent last two years thinking more about DevOps. And, you know, I'm sure there is a definition of DevOps out there for, for just about everyone. Uh, my definition really simply of DevOps is it's not just about, uh, you know, developers and operations. It really applies to all aspects of software development. It starts with application architecture. It's, it goes on to release management. It involves ITSM. Of course, it involves deploying to production, but beyond yeah. that, monitoring your application, doing performance engineering. It includes all of those disciplines. And it's really about, ultimately, it is all about faster speed, time to market, and continuously improving your process and your disciplines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, there's dev, there's ops, what else is there? <laughs> you know, it's, it, I, the word holistic comes to mind. And yes. I, these days I talk a lot about, again, over on RunAs, where this is a regular topic, uh, data security and security in general, the role of management, 
You know, there are other parties. They even deal with the customers. Like, everybody matters that touches the software. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you, you have to, um, and Richard, you made an important point earlier on that, you know, when we talk about DevOps, we automatically talk about scripts and things like that. Yes. But then are you treating your scripts as first-class citizens? Because there's a lot of script sprawl happening these days. <laughs> and are you treating them as first-class citizens? Are you are you in baking in the exception handling? Are you reusing your scripts? Are you writing from scratch? Hmm. Those things become important there as well. Absolutely. And, and yeah, are you writing scripts you're proud of enough that you'd let other people use them? When was the last time you're looking through some archive somewhere and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. Hey, wait a minute. I could use that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, it, and it's, we were talking about this way that operations people are becoming more like developers. Part of this is this code check in piece of, yeah, we are do write code that's part of our configuration, it's part of deployment, it's part of instrumentation. Where does that code live? How is it healthy and maintained? And how do we avoid breaking it? And how do we avoid all the same problems we have with developers? You need to be able to go on vacation and not think everything's going to break while you're gone and work continues. Yeah. You know, that that's what all this infrastructure is about. That, that, that's that's exactly right. So so if if I can actually take a step back and then try to sort of uh, explain whether you like the term model driven uh, DevOps or not, l let me take a step back if that's all right at this point in the show Please. to 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 provide uh, you know some background on wh why I arrived at this. And and I have to say this before I launch into my reasons that the things that about about I'm about to describe typically apply for a somewhat larger organization trying to move to the cloud or maybe have hybrid development, but there were a handful of applications that they are trying to deploy. And I make this important uh, differentiation here because if you're a startup, you probably have a flagship product or a service, and you would deal with automation slightly differently. I'm talking about a situation where you have a handful of applications that you want to deploy to the cloud and you want to manage them. And, and it is this uh, requirement that where this model-driven development or model-driven DevOps comes into uh, play. So with that said, some of the things as I've been working with various customers and sort of taking, you know, going through the journey of taking their first application to production, some of the things that I realized and others, other listeners of your show may have realized is that there is a strong impedance mismatch happening. I talked about the different disciplines earlier. Mm -hmm. So so let's let's uh, talk about this. So let's say I want to build a new application. Uh, that application is comprised of a certain number of building blocks. So you have to go through some kind of a review board in a large organization and say, you know, I want to use these building blocks. Is this have PCI compliance? Is will this meet my needs? Uh, does that have the scalability and things like that? So you go through that. So we typically call that an onboarding process where you go through and make sure that the constituent parts of your application are acceptable to the cloud standards or the standards that an organization has set for themselves. So mm -hmm. that's one. So typically you do that. You draw some kind of a UML diagram or some other diagram and you go in front of the board and they say, yes, use these blocks or this is new. Well, let's evaluate it. And if we approve it, you can use it. That's it one. Might, yeah, it might be a place where you need to do a spike or further testing. 
Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. So that's that's one phase. Now moving on to the next phase where okay now of all my building blocks have been approved I now need to draw some kind of a topology diagram that my network team can understand and then bless. So my network team will typically take my UML diagram and convert into some kind of a network diagram some visio diagram that they are comfortable with. And you know they will go say okay fine this is your DMZ this is how you will break up your virtual network into these many subnets these are the firewall rules here are the um, you know the NSGs or, and things like that so so they convert your original UML diagram into some kind of a network diagram and then of course you have application architecture diagrams and then you have people who will be saying okay how do we do high availability for this application and typically how high availability has been done is here is a 20 page document that talks about how this application would be made highly available and fault tolerant but that's the 20 page document and it is not an executable document so this brings me back to the point that i was trying to make earlier that there is an impedance mismatch in this process that we are converting from one diagram to another in the process losing some information and then we have different formats for each phase of the application so i talked about onboarding the application and then um, provisioning that application deploying that application there are different diagrams and documents that describe each stage of that application so that's that was one motivation can we do better can we sort of eliminate this noise that that transformation is bringing in mm. the other point that i commonly see is of course we want developers and the operations people to work together but their tools of choice are different developers uh, if you look at where visual studio is going and you you can open up visual studio 2015 and right click and say create me this vm but go deploy it in azure all of that automation is generated for you yeah. so cl clearly developers are going to gravitate towards that but then operation folks may be more familiar with uh, an orchestrator model or a runbook of some sort mm. and things like that uh, as a result we are ending up with what i described earlier as a script sprawl and then not treating script as a first class citizen mm -hmm. in terms of code so so that was that was the other thing and then finally uh, you have different sort of target deployment environments you may actually be developing on prem you may be developing a test version on prem maybe you may be deploying the production code in the cloud or the other way around so you now have a different set of scripts that you have to deal with so as i have been working with the clients for the last 2 years i realized that these some of these problems were surfacing again and again and resulting in sort of devops being more challenging than it needed to be so the in looking at sort of these challenges one of the possible solution would be that wouldn't it be nice and i i certainly don't want to take the conversation to model driven development and model driven architecture things that were terms that were used uh, in the last decade and and all of the interesting conversation that it can lead to mm -hmm. my my point is that is there a way to sort of declaratively define these aspects that i talked about earlier right. and which means do do i is there a way that there can be one sort of model which describes the topology the network topology maybe describes the high availability describes security, the yeah. security yeah. describes monitoring mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and 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 the fact that it is a declarative model i can apply some validation rules on it i can say that you know you make sure that my application remains in this desired state and does not drift from the state and then finally it sort of gives me an opportunity to sort of minimize the custom script that i have to write because it is a declarative model so that seemed appealing and that sort of solution led me to something called the azure resource manager which your listeners are probably familiar with but probably worth repeating that azure resource manager is it seems to be from all indications are that it is going to be the sort of the default control plane for azure so all all the deployment all of the you know turning the knobs is going through something called the resource manager and we can we can get into what resource manager is in a moment but what is also interesting is that resource manager is not limited to the cloud going forward it applies to on prem as well so it takes care of my third challenge which is we are living in a world which is which is hybrid by its very nature and yeah. we want we want to be able to sort of you know deploy our script and say you know i want a version of this application on prem and then i want this version of this application in the cloud because the security requirements are different and things no it's funny i'm i keep thinking of technologies that are sort of disruptive that come around that sort of span dev and ops and you know containers come to mind that things that were more complex in the past become easier and more scriptable and uh you know you find that instead of having to plug a whole bunch of holes that everything's right there in one place absolutely i th- i think uh, you know the the clients that i've been working with uh, we we could not use containers uh, you know as you know microsoft just announced that uh, containers would be available as part of the next version of windows server and they talked about the two containers and i think it's going to be huge because imagine taking the application taking all its dependencies and then being able to run it in a lightweight manner inside a container is going to be huge i think and it has com- the same impact that virtualization had just more this just is, more, you know, just more just so yeah. Lighter, just, more portable. I I think we're going to get, you know, we already talked about hybrid cloud, which I think is permanent. I think but I think we're hitting to a place where it's like, where is this running? Who knows? Who cares? It just doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. maybe maybe it makes sense to take this particular part of the app and run it on the guy's local machine cuz he has the horsepower. A Docker container small enough, haul it down, execute it there, then destroy it. Imagine it's secure enough that it not only can't do anything to the machine, he can't do anything to it. Oh, and by the way, how'd you like another one of those? Oh, a hundred more? Thousand? Yeah. How, how many? What? Yeah, let me just push this button right here. Well, and they run on minnow boards and Arduinos <laughs> and things, right? Like, they're so light. It's crazy. So, so absolutely. Uh, Carla, your, your point is well taken that, uh, you know, what I'm describing here is, is not targeted to containers here because it, it is sort of more generic. But containers fit right into this because uh, to me, and we met at Build, Uh, to me one of the most important announcements to come out from the azure team at bill was the azure service fabric mm-hmm. and i think of it as the orchestration layer and today uh, service fabric supports if you go if you spin up a azure service fabric cluster and the beauty is you can spin it up on your local machine or in a vm in the cloud if you spin up a cluster the minimum unit of deployment uh 
right now is not a container that the team has announced. So it is a, it is a, a process today. But going forward, the team has announced that, you know, once the container support comes in, then you can use the orchestration layer provided by the Azure Service Fabric and deploy your applications in that manner. So sure. containers are going to be huge in that sense. And it, and it speaks to this larger goal of utter portability that that's what we, that's the model part is it should be able to run anywhere. You don't need to make decisions on that. It's so true though. I mean, even, even as a, a developer who's not particularly DevOpsy, I mean, I still have to deal with all, you know, the Azure portal. And as you know, the Azure portal is broken down in terms of the tools that Azure gives you, not in terms of projects, you know, so you have to use you know, a little of this service, a little of that service, and now you've got pages all over the place. And there is some, I guess, impulse towards consolidation. But what you're talking about is is uh, is quite different, I think. Yeah, and sort of let me sort of uh, convert this, uh, you know, what we've talked about theoretically about, you know, the problems, the impedance mismatch, and, and, and you know, the script sprawl and things like that. And let me sort of uh, present it in a functional manner of how this these ideas can manifest itself. Uh, I know you're going to talk to Carol Moon, or you may have already talked to him. He, he is he's the ITIL guy. He has been thinking about how ITIL works in the cloud. Mm-hmm. If you talk to him, there's this concept of a service catalog, uh, which many of your listeners are very familiar with. The, and that idea has been gaining ground a lot. The idea is that let's say I have an application that is deployed to production and um, now somebody comes in and it's some kind of a sales application where you are very concerned about, you know, the number of pages that you show to a user before they can generate some sort of a quote. Mm-hmm. And an analyst walks into your office and says, if we make this tiny change to this workflow, we can, I bet you, we can improve the engagement and the conversion for our for our customers and prospects who visit our website. Mm. And you tell them, well, go off and create an environment for yourself, make that change, run some kind of an A-B test and come back and tell me. Yeah. And that problem, and this is this is no, no surprise to anybody here, just getting yourself an environment with that small change and to be able to run some kind of a test on it has not been easy. It, it, it is days, if not weeks, to get that environment. So what companies have been trying to do is, you know, well, I have, I'm going to have a service catalog where I will enable this behavior where I can go to my service catalog and once an application has been onboarded, it will appear, and now think a shopping cart here, that application will appear as a menu item in my service catalog. So imagine this analyst goes in, picks that application, and he's talked to the developers and developers have made the change that he, he needed. And he picks that item from the catalog and then, and then says, go deploy this version of the application. So picks the application, picks the build he wants to be, get deployed and picks some other characteristics, like how uh, do I want to run a load test of some sort, in which case I need a higher caliber application. So picks these options and within minutes, gets a copy of the application. And then, you know, of course, there's a cost associated with that. So get some kind of a cost metric of how long this test can run. So imagine that that scenario. It kind of sounds uh, like SCOM, System Operations Manager. 
Is that, am I wrong, Richard? No, no, you're right. An operations manager plays a role in this in the sense that it gives, it's like the heartbeat of an infrastructure. In the end, it's an instrumentation solution and it has its own set of problems. Uh, but it's only one part of the equation. Mm. Right. Well, hey, Richard, you know what time yeah, it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to write a script to seek out all the scripts scattered all over my enterprise, consolidate them in one place, and comment it all out. <laughs> Just kill them all. <laughs> kill them all! Kill everything. <laughs> I, I hate to do this is just as an aside. I got off a call early this morning with a customer where we're doing an analysis of their network and discovered an entire web sphere infrastructure running inside of the network that nobody knew about. Oh. 15 servers. Jeez. <laughs> there you go. But we don't have any web sphere. Let me tell you how many ways you're wrong. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a copy of Music to Code by on CD and DVD. And download pr- pretty much uh, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But let me tell you about Music to Code by if you haven't heard of it. This is something that I did. It's music, 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals specifically designed to promote focus. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. And .NET Rocks fans and developers all over the world are being more productive with Music to Code by. Just check out their tweets and comments. It's pretty amazing. So see what and all it's the still fuss- growing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I just put out another number seven is out now. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> number seven, I got to use the, uh, the 12 string guitar. Nice. Yeah. So that's, it's kind of different, but people are really loving it and still being very productive. So while check carefully it. not listening to it. Yeah. While not listening to it. So check it out at <laughs> mtcb.pwop.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Pontus Wittenmark. Ah, congratulations, Pontus. Pontus. Golf clap for you, and sir. I love your name. It's awesome. I wish that is an awesome name. It's a very regal name. I wish my name was Pontus Wittenmark. I just feel like uh, people would respect me more. There's nothing wrong with Carl Franklin. No, no, no. no. Pontus <laughs> Wittenmark has just <laughs> entered the room. That's a serious oh. name. Oh, yes. Very cool. And uh, Pontus, you just won Music to Code By, including the documentary, The Making of Music to Code By. And I uh, hope you enjoy that. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. you got to sign up to win. We also ask our guests right about now, Vishwas, if you had $5,000 U.S. to spend on anything you want in the technology realm or gadgets or, you know, hobbies or whatever, just what's cool and new out there that you want to buy. Uh, I would, uh, you know, go back to uh, what I said the last time. I'm even more convinced. I'm going to talk about Raspberry Pi 2. Yeah. Uh, the ability to to um, get kids motivated to doing something would it's just enormous with a device like that. Love it. So, Absolutely. I tell you what, man. I I got a little ninety nine dollar monitor, with HDMI TV kind of thing, and a cheap keyboard and mouse and a Raspberry Pi, and there's just amazing things you can do with that stuff. It's, it's really just very cool. I've I've been going crazy with it actually here. Yeah, but uh, hey. how many? So how many Raspberry Pis could that buy? I mean, if you're talking about the fifty dollar version, that's a lot. 
That's a lot. That's a lot. A lot of pie. That, yeah, that, that's that's how many smiles. That's right. <laughs> yes. I love it. Wonderful. You know, we keep talking about the model and culture and things like this, but just like we, just before we got to the break, it still comes down to tools. You know, those are the manifestations of all our intentions and processes is, is these tools that help that stuff go true. Without virtualization, whether you talk about containers or traditional, so much of this is too hard to do. It's mm-hmm. almost impossible. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. I think I think tooling is extremely important in this. And, uh, you know, just before the break, I was sort of, uh, if I break up my thoughts as I was, you know, thinking about before our conversation started, really into three parts. So first part was sort of motivating why sort of a model-driven approach is needed. And then the second part that I described just before the break was the sort of the mental model of, you know, think shopping cart, go get the application. And and Rich, and Carl, you talked about, you know, is it similar to SCOM? And, and it is, and you know, that this is not an earth shattering idea, but it is sort of, you know, confluence of many of these things that have existed. Right. So we are not talking about, you know, going, not talking about just going out and provisioning a VM. Mm-hmm. We are talking now about provisioning a multi-tier application and, and all the things that are associated with that. So, so that, that sort of brings to my sort of third part of what I wanted to talk about which is, so how does this approach, how does this resource manager approach sort of address the problems that we talked about in the first part? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so as we know, resource manager is a JSON-based language. And the beauty is that as new services are being onboarded to Azure, each team is sort of adding a schema for their specific service. And you can go to GitHub and, and, and look at the schemas. So you are now getting a rich metadata to use to describe these services. And remember, I was talking about the impedance mismatch and the conversion that you have to go through. Mm-hmm. Let's just take that and, and, and look at it from a perspective of a JSON file. So you could have a portion of a JSON file that describes what are the architectural elements of your application, whether it is websites and a Redis cache and a SQL Azure database, let's say. So that's the application architecture aspect of the model. Now, you want to also include some type of a release management aspect into this model. Well, it turns out that if you look at the Azure web apps, there are a bunch of properties that point to where should the build be picked up from, what version of build, and typically you have run some kind of a build system. So you can now inject into that the release management aspects. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if you want to do, let's say, the monitoring, and we talked about monitoring at the beginning, well, turns out that you can inject monitoring-related rules inside the same JSON. There are different elements, different parts of the same JSON, but essentially the different teams, rather than producing different documents and going through the conversion, are producing elements of one giant document. And, and oh, by the way, HA, which happened to be a 20-page document that somebody wrote, could also be some sort of a JSON format. So you're taking these aspects of the application, converting them. So going back to our picture of, I go to a shopping cart system, Mm. I pick up an application, I say I want application 1.05, and I want a monitoring profile of production or staging, and I want a high availability profile of 
you know, what are the, you know, recovery time objectives for the application? I want a HA profile that matches that. And by virtue of you selecting all these things, we can combine the snippets of JSON, produce one giant JSON and go to the Azure Resource Manager and say, hey, go provision these things for me. Yeah. And now I can control it in that manner. So that's, so once again, to Richard's point, it is very important that every service that comes along has a rich description in terms of JSON. The tooling is important. The ability to go to, uh, you know, the resource manager endpoint and say, hey, here's the, here's the JSON endpoint. And by the way, you can define the role-based security model in that JSON too. Uh, here's my JSON. Please go make it so. And you go, so that tooling aspect is important as well. Now, one thing I should clarify, and your, your listeners will probably have questions, that there's going to be a constant um, lag between, you know, what the resource manager does today and how at the pace at which these new services are coming right. up. So what you typically want to do is, you know, you, you want to take advantage of all the declarative capabilities of the model, but then you want extensibility in terms of, uh, so let's say I provision an Azure SQL database, and today there is no easy way to sort of turn on point in time um, snapshot capability just through the JSON model, just there is not, right? right. So, well, you, you can write what, what is known as an Azure flow, which is, think of it as a workflow. You define your JSON file, it will do the things it can do, but you can add custom steps then which go in and turn on the point in time restore capability on that Azure SQL database. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to, to hear you describe this system that all that stuff is out there. You're just put, you're just making it project centric, right? You're making it app centric rather than tool centric, which is really what I love. I love that. I love being able to just say, use a little of this and a little of that, but do it all in one place. That's right. That's right. And, and then imagine that an organization, uh, once they have this, these things defined, they can have a central repository of these well-defined applications. Mm. And it is not uncommon for a large organization to have 50, 100, 200 app, such applications. Right. And imagine going to the catalog, showing, getting a list of those applications, being able to select from that application, right. then provisioning and deploying it is huge. Sure. Yeah. But it also speaks to this fact that, you know, I think this is what frustrates a lot of people when you try and get to this place. There is no one size fits all. There is no DevOps in a box. Like you have to roll this out for each app individually based on its needs and merit. Right. Richard, that, that is true. There is no, you know, uh, shrink wrap DevOps, DevOps in a box product. You, you know, it, at the end of the day, it requires, uh, you know, discipline, robust, uh, you know, planning. What I described earlier is there are some common aspects of the process that I described and there's some commonality that you can harvest. So let's say a common repository could be a start. Mm -hmm. You have certain aspects of the application. Let's say, let's say you find that, well, uh, for example, we know Azure Web Apps is PCI compliant. So that's cool with your security folks. And that's a well-defined building block. So, well, you can go ahead and use that. So, some of that can be reused. So, let's say monitoring profile. 
you know, this application falls into this category and it has the same sort of recovery time objectives so I can reuse my HA profile. So there's some commonality, but then there's very application specific things that you need to do. I need to go deploy the application in a certain order. I need to have the right set of startup tasks. I need to, if there are some custom plugins that I need to install, that's all going to be uh, custom for that one application. But there are aspects that you can, um, you know, um, create a common version for and reuse across applications. Even the common repository is not easy. It depends on what needs to be in it. You know, if you're if you're not using SQL Server, you have a whole class of problems that don't exist in your common repository. It's pretty tough That's to right. store schema to at this point in in the world in most source code repositories and get that to be a, a simple reflex. One of the things I think people like about NoSQL is it gets rid of that problem. It's a terrible reason to choose a data storage method, but it's an impediment to this automation. That's right. Right. Although, you know, for the Azure SQL database, Richard, uh, and and you're absolutely right, you know, not everybody um, can take advantage of this for, for various reasons. But, you know, the, the concept of backpack and backpack files, you know, combined with the resource manager JSON can take you a lot, can take you, um, you know, well on your way to automating certain aspects of schema yeah. and seed data and things like that. I, I think it's a worthy effort. It's just not. It's, it's, just, it's not again. It's not out of the box, right? It but is you've not got a, you've, yeah. If I'm an experienced DBA and yeah. I've been one, I think I'm over it at this point. Maybe I'm on the methadone program for DBAs right now. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the idea of fundamentally changing my tooling strategy, which is what you're talking about for how I'm going to manage databases going forward so that I'm part of this model of a single repository for all those assets. That's time-consuming, threatening, like you're talking about derailing years of work. Right. And you, you, you're absolutely right, Richard. I, I don't want to, to you know, just have this conversation and say, you know, this is all done. This is the direction. Uh, I think one of the things people have to realize about DevOps is that, you know, you don't don't uh, try to do all of these things at once. You know, the idea is to automate ability to to build your products more quickly, ship more often. So maybe you start with a small part of automation, see how it works, add more to it, and things like that. Yeah, but your strategy of automation is fundamentally crippled if a key asset is not part of that repository. That right, and that's why he was saying that you want to be able to just declaratively go add those things as they come in. And it sort of speaks to each of these apps is going to have their own challenges. And, and, and it's one of the reasons, I mean, I, I'm, on, I'm clearly on a soapbox this moment. We've done a bunch of shows on how to make SQL Server work and play well in a DevOps environment for a while because it's hard. Yes. But I think it's important. Like if we, if we, when I could, when I find, I'm starting to see some models I'm pretty excited about. We've been doing some stuff in the field where, you know, literally the database guys are off cadence with everybody else's releases. You do changes to the database before the new deploy. The deploy comes out. You do second round changes to clean up. Like it's interesting, but it speaks to the possibilities. It's just your deployment process looks very different for the database than for the rest of the app. Agreed. Agreed. But it's exciting. I mean, it's, I think it's coming true that we, we bring the teams together like this and, and bring them in bit by bit. But it's just sort of an acknowledgement of as you work your way down the model, you're eventually going to have to 
get everybody in the boat before you can go to the next step. Absolutely. It, requ- it requires, uh, you know, looking at your application, thinking through your processes, see, you know, find a candidate application that may fit this model. So, and then, of course, starting small. Right, and being able to show value one little bit at a time. I think it's. I think it's a part. We keep thinking about this as a big bang, you know, that all these things are going to happen. It's. It's. I think it's very challenging to granularize it enough to make small changes, be successful, them show value, go again. That is. That is true, Richard. And and you know this. Uh, the need to go in this direction is is really being pushed uh, because of you know the move to the cloud. Because I, I firmly believe that in order to be successful in the cloud you have to have a good automation DevOps strategy in place. Yeah, except that you keep telling me that this strategy is going to vary from app to app. You know, so the the strategy is the same, Richard, but, okay. uh, but the strategy is the same, like I said, but, you know, your app requirements may be different, so how you deploy the application may be different, what building blocks you use is different, but the strategy of using a declarative model and bringing together different aspects of the application in this one model that allows you to take advantage of capabilities of resource manager, I think that is a powerful model. Yes. And that, that applies across applications. And that speaks to a true strategy that is agnostic to language, tool, platform. It's much more of a process piece that's, that, that can handle all of that. Indeed. Uh, it's exciting. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting challenge. It, it, well, you talked about challenges, Vishwas, and you know, Richard brought up a couple. What are what are uh, maybe some gotchas that we haven't thought about yet, or haven't talked so, about? So, you know, I, I mentioned one, which which I think I should go back to earlier is uh, resource manager is an evolving story, and in fact, there are there are certain Azure services cloud services being one of them, which was released before the concept of resource manager does mm-hmm. not uh, work with work with this. So uh, you have to carefully look at your application and see if all the resources that you're working with are part of the Azure resource manager. That's one. Yeah. The other one that I mentioned earlier, which was there is going to be a lag between how quickly these capabilities are being developed Our example earlier was Azure SQL database added a point-in-time restore capability. And this is a recent capability. There is no resource manager way of doing that. And I could be proven wrong because these schemas are changing constantly. And Mm. with the three-week cadence, uh, it's very easy to be, you know, uh, off base here because that may have just showed in. But the last time I checked, uh, you can do point-in-time re- restore just through setting an attribute or an element inside that JSON file. So that's where the extensibility comes in, that you go and through through the Azure flow or through this workflow definition, have a custom step that will go back in and turn the point-in-time restore on. So uh, as as much as I like this idea, and I think this is certainly an idea that that we've been trying to implement uh, and because of the, the preview nature, not all capabilities being available, you have to find extensibilities and things like that to implement. I do think that some model like this is going to be important going forward. 
No, and I really appreciate the thinking here that the, absolutely, how do you get to the true strategic elements that it covers all these different things and stuff like common repositories, automation, instrumentation, like, those are core concepts that doesn't matter what you're doing, it's useful, it's important, and they're the steps you need to take, and you're not there if you haven't dealt with each of these things. Yeah, and, and you know, the Azure resource team has already, if you, we can add some links to the show here. Uh, there is a GitHub repository where people have been collecting a bunch of templates and those templates def have, you know, you could have a template with a Redis cache, you have a template for installing a different type of application and that template is, the list of templates is growing rapidly. So you could go to GitHub repository and say, I want this template because this matches my requirements. So that's happening. And then uh, I'm sure you've talked about in previous shows that you can go to, a GitHub repository and find a template and say, hey, deploy this template. And by clicking on that deploy to my subscription button, it'll come up and ask you which subscription do you want to go to and, and then go deploy that template to your application. So, so you're already beginning to see uh, sort of this effort about defining these templates and then making them super easy to use. Hmm. Um, Vishwas, any last minute things you want to throw in there or call outs or resources or things before we wrap it up? Uh, I, I think uh, I'll provide you with a bunch of links. I think adding them would be helpful, specifically the list of templates. Okay. For sure. It'd be helpful. Excellent. Well, thanks again. It's been great talking to you. Always is. Thank you very much for your time. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.